Thank you, Ben. You know, it's somebody asked a friend of mine one time, his name is Eric Ingerbretson. He uh, went to, uh, oh, I forget what school he went to, but it was a music institute, incredible jazz guitar player, incredible vocalist, and uh, toured uh, Europe for years practicing his craft, and he got to the U.S., and someone said, gosh, how did you get so good playing guitar? And he said, practice. And their response, and I can't quote it exactly, was, um, wow, I wish I would, were as talented as you. Uh, and he goes, practice. And he said, I just wasn't born with those musical skills. He said, practice. Right? So this just doesn't happen. They just don't grab a guitar or a banjo. Uh, somebody has privately spent hours making bad sounds until they've made good sounds. It was... Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. I'm I'm working on a new instrument right now, and it's not pretty. Um, the um, and it'll be a long time before you'll see it up here. My self-image isn't as solid as yours. My son decided he wanted to play drums, and I, I heard all the parents I I couldn't take those drums in my house. All that banging around, I loved it. It it meant a couple things. It meant he's learning a skill. It meant the band had to come over because the band always comes to the drummer's house. So the, the or, or unless the keyboard, unless you have a keyboard the size of a 40-acre ranch. Uh, but so the band, all his friends were in our basement. And that noise was a small price to pay when I'd hear the, the eruption of laughter of Kyle's eighth grade sophomore and junior friends in the house making noise. And so what to some parents was something that stand was something that was absolutely beautiful to me. We're going to watch a video in a little while that I hope will um, um, help with this uh, conversation. So if you get bored with me speaking, hang on, there's a video coming about two, two-thirds of the way through. Matthew chapter 7 and our continuation of the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, comes to a real tricky passage. Keep in mind that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount was introducing the kingdom of God. He was telling us, you have heard it said, but I say. In other words, you've been living in this kingdom. I'm going to tell you about the new kingdom. Okay, We, we do it differently there. And then he says to him, but it's not just there. You can do it here. So the kingdom of God is both not yet and now. So those of us who are believers believe that we are actually going to be freed at the end of the story. So according to Paul's writings, this present suffering, I don't worry about too much because I know how the story ends. And I've talked many times about climbing illustrations, and, and I'm, I'm sure I used this one recently with you. But that night at 13,000 feet, after we had climbed the west ridge of Lone Pine Peak in, the, in October, we, we missed a trail on the way down the, the exit gully. We ended up spending the night at about 13,000 feet. Climbers' rule is speed is safety. And therefore, go as light as absolutely possible, but as heavy as necessary. 
So you go light enough so that you can survive worst case scenario. Well, we had worst case scenario. We stayed out. Best, it wasn't raining that night, but it got down to the upper 20s. And we had one down jacket between us. We had our two packs, and we were going to be cold. However, both of us had been through, between us, we had about 60 years of climbing experience. Both of us had been out on cold nights before. I've been hanging off at 900 feet off the east face of Liberty Bell, uh, which if you care to look up Liberty Bell Mountain, you'll see where I was. Uh, Liberty Bell hanging, spending the night without down jackets, just me and my buddy. And the one against the rock, while he held the other one in his, in, in, in his arms to keep him balanced, the one against the rock after 20 minutes would get so shivery cold, we'd have to slap our buddy, and, hey, wake up. And we'd have to adjust and hang and switch. It was a miserable night. Just before daylight, it started raining. Lee and I knew we could survive this night out. We knew it wasn't going to be easy, but we knew he we would survive. When you know you're going to get out alive, that changes the moment that changes the now. Well, morning hadn't come, right? We weren't out yet. But we had a good sense that we're going to make it out of this thing. So during the night, there's no problem. And I think as I've told you before, except suffering, but it's the idea of suffering well. And sometime just before daylight, I said, as we were spooning together, and Lee's a big guy, so I fit really nice right in there. Um, as we were spooning together, trying to share this down jacket, me shivering almost uncontrollably, I, I said, uh, Lee, yeah, I think I'm falling in love. Because we weren't worried about surviving. We could be light, right? We could be humorous. It's, it's not an issue of, Oh, no, I'm going to die. Now, I will tell you, I've had rookies and young climbers out on bad situations like this, and their mood is completely different because they don't know how the story ends. As believers, we know how the story ends. That changes our now, does it not? It changes the present when we know how it ends. In our pref pref present suffering is nothing compared to the eternal glory. So even though it hurts now, we can hurt well. And you have seen people without hope suffer, and they're bitter, and they're angry, and they say they're broken before God. No, they're in pain. It's a big difference. Some people in pain and suffering shake their fist even harder. Some people in pain and suffering break their demands on God to come through for them because, God, you work for me. And we change that to a God, I live for you. Whatever happens, I know how the story ends. And there's a joy amongst even in the painful suffering. I'm not making light of suffering, mind you. So we come to this idea of... Finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, we, he gets extremely practical here. And I want to read the text for you, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Do not judge, and usually that's where we stop. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure that you use, 
it will be measured toward you. I like to take in my Bible, and when it says you, I like to write in Mark or I. Let me read that again. Do not judge, Mark, or I will be judged. For in the same way that I judge others, I will also be judged. And with the same measure that I use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I think I'll stop right there uh, because Amy in, in childcare said, you better be short. <laughs> so I've never really messed with Amy, but just from the looks of her, I don't want to mess with Amy. <laughs> So we have two words that come out of here that are commonly used. Do not judge and hypocrite. Folks, I have to tell you, I will be the leader in the hypocrite section. Quit worrying about being a hypocrite. There's no one who's not a hypocrite. So relax, folks. You're in good company. If you want to sit in the hypocrite section, I'll be there already. I can't do it, which is another point of the Sermon on the Mount. You can't do it. And Clay hit that really well. We can't do it. We're all hypocrites. We're all exposed. None of us can do it. So relax. We're a hypocrite. It's okay. None of us can love perfectly. We like to think we can. We hope we can. But my love for Susie perfectly lasts for about 30 seconds. Then I start thinking about, okay, how's... Or I start getting afraid. Or I start to panic. I start to wonder, "Uh uh-oh, I said that's going to leave her an opening to get to me. Right? And so I start playing defense instead of loving. But I digress. This passage, we've got divided up into two sections, basically the issue of uh, one through two, do not judge or you'll be judged in the same way you judge. And the second one, why do you look at the speck of, of sawdust in your own eye? So I've got it divided up into two parts. Life is very dynamic. I hope to not give you a set of rules today to do this. This is impossible to sort out completely. Case in point of my Life is difficult. I was at a gas station in Everett, Washington on Evergreen Way filling up my 2004 Blue Trailblazer. And I noticed someone approaching me. Now, you haven't been to South Everett, most likely, but South Everett is riddled with gangs. And there are housing units close by, and there are gangs everywhere. And my, my neighborhood was just the other side of the street from that. I noticed someone approaching me. I saw in the curve of my window someone coming right from here by themselves, wearing a hoodie, and I thought a mask. So I turned, casually but alert, and said, hey. And he said, hey, got any money? So I touched my wallet in my back pocket just so I knew where it was, and I said, yeah, what's up? And it occurred to me, he's going to rob me. And I said, yeah, I got a five for you, but don't come up on me, man, with that mask. Do you hear me? I was scared. I remember this moment well. 
I judged him. Don't come up on me with that mask. This is hard for me to tell you. He pulled down his mask and showed his hugely deformed lip and hole in his right cheek. Would you have liked this better, he said? Mask back up and walked off. Got it? He was so deformed that from six or eight feet, I could easily see what the issue was. He wasn't wearing a mask to rob me. He was wearing a mask. Well, I can't judge his motives. But he was covering his face. But I immediately judged. Now, should I have judged? I'm all by myself. He's coming up behind me. He's got a hoodie on and a mask. What would you judge? But he flipped it on me and judged me harshly for what seems to be reasonable judgment. And that moment has stuck in my mind because, folks, we have to judge. Without judgment, we can't make distinctions about what's safe and what's not safe. Our high school girls can't determine what boys actually are kind and what boys are just exciting to be with because they've been told don't judge. And so they don't make these distinctions. And like I've said before, we judge every time we get on Highway 69 and head south of town by the feed store and coming straight ahead five or six feet off our left-hand shoulder is a car in the rain coming 60 miles an hour, 55, whatever the speed limit is there. And we're going 55. That's a 110 mile an hour crash. But we make judgments that they're not texting, that the headlights aren't swerving, that they are sober, that that car is tracking straight. Are you with me? We have to judge. But when it comes to judging a human, we have to be careful. Now, put this passage in context. Ancient Israel, right? We're not talking about Jerusalem. We're not talking about Rome, Athens, or Venice. We're not talking about people who are educated in Socrates. We're not people who understand Stoicism or Hellenistic Greek culture, for that matter. And they certainly don't understand hedonistic thought. They certainly aren't philosophers. They're normal Jewish people who are trying to survive a Roman occupation of their countryside. Who are, being help, who are helpless and harassed by the religious leaders telling them they need to do more and religious leaders judging that's a good offering, that's not a good offering. You're in, you're out. You're good, you're bad. You're one of us, you're not one of us. You're Jewish, you're half Jewish, you're Samaritan. Your great ancestors... Uh, Bred with the Babylonians and the Samaritans. They never even made it through. You're a half-breed. You're Roman. You're Jewish. We don't know what you are. You're good, you're bad, you're in and out. <laughs> My notes here, we need to teach our sons and daughters to be able to discern from what is authentic care and what's manipulation from users and I'll say the word jerks. I spoke for a, a week 
Spiritual Life Conference during the fall at a Bible school in, in a state adjacent to you here. And I was the speaker, like I said, for their Spiritual Life Conference. I, I had the false assumption that this was a super spiritual school. I hung out with the basketball team, largely made up of juniors and seniors, for a number of evenings because of one of my connections here. You should have heard the way they talked about the freshman girl as, an, as the fresh crop. But our girls get mixed up and confused by that because somebody has a car, somebody has a little bit of money, somebody's charming, and someone is pursuing them who's older. And our girls go into college so often as freshmen who are naive and haven't been educated in this, and they're like, wow. Six months later, pastors like me pick up the pieces of a broken, naive heart, sometimes a baby, as someone has used them as a toy for their own pleasure. We need to teach our kids the difference between judgment of somebody's worthiness as a human and discernment on what is good and bad and helpful for the moment. Now, I can say something to Susie And I can judge rightly when I say it. But I may have had terrible timing. My discernment may have been very poor. Are you with me? It's a huge difference. The difference between judgment and discernment is critical. Survival requires that we understand the issues of life and can distinguish between What we are told to accept anybody, accept everybody, be tolerant all the time, when absolute common knowledge says this is absolute foolishness. Susie and I were in Ireland. Now, I wouldn't even walk down an alley in in my own hometown of Seattle sometimes. But we were in Ireland, and there were a bunch of drunks down the alleyway. And I said, I'm going to go see those guys. And I walked down there, and they'd been drinking all night. You know what they were doing? They were celebrating their soccer team's victory. And when I got close to them, one of them put an arm around me, and they're singing this. I just wanted to experience the Irish culture. And my discernment said this was an okay thing to do as a full-grown adult male. Right? And it turned out to be great. I even video, videotaped their, their singing. They'd probably been singing all night. But on another occasion, on another time, in another place, with another group of people, that may have been foolishness. Do you agree? Yeah, of course. We have law enforcement officers in this room this morning. They make discerning judgments about every car they approach, every person they encounter. They must and they have to, and society requires them to do that. We have school teachers here who make discerning judgments about who just walked in the back door because I've got 30 students that I'm responsible for. Is that person safe or not safe? Do we judge them as worthy of being a human? That's a whole other story. But more importantly, do we judge like the Pharisees? That's a sinner. Or do we judge them discerningly whether they're safe or not for our students? We need, to look, we need to learn the difference. There are employers here who have to judge, 
may I say, discern the quality of work that their employees do. So, of course, we judge. That person does shoddy work. That doesn't person does excellent work. We have to be able to judge whether those children that are unruly need a nap or whether they need other things. We need to judge accurately when we're being bullied or when there's a bully around, whether we should approach this bully and stop them from bullying or whether we should be silent at this particular time. We might not be the person to confront the bully. We need to be able to discern users and manipulators. We need to be able to discern our own feelings. How are we doing, everybody? Is this interesting? It's thoughtful, isn't it? Because we have this idea of do not judge, but we live in a real world where we have the person saying this has, has been seated at the right hand hand of the Father, and as we read the final chapter in this story of Revelations, we understand that there's going to be a great white throne judgment one day. And there will be a discerning and a separating of of the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. So the person saying this will be the ultimate judge So if he means on face value and literally do not judge, then he's contradicting his own character. That cannot be what he means in the way he means it. Talking to these hillside, country, rural, uh, uh, Jewish, Hebrew people, he's saying to them, in in a sense, I think he's speaking to the Pharisees right here at this point, particularly. But he's saying to them, we have to judge, but you better judge carefully. Because how you judge will be the way you're judged. So judge very, very, very carefully. And I'm aware right now that I've got two fingers pointing this way, but I've got three more pointing back at me. I'm terrible about this. I don't even recognize it. It happens so often. That guy's an idiot. Tyler. (laughs) I'll sit with you, man, any day. Driving down the road, it happens all the time. Watching the news, it happens all the time. I must tell you that My dear wife has been, has been, and and for a $10 bill, Susie, I won't tell this story. For a 20, I won't tell that story. My dear wife got a letter recently. Now understand that Susie's story has been out there with the Jesus Calling video that, how many of you saw that, by the way? Half of you. Watch the Jesus Calling video, Susie McIntyre. Said 177,000 views. Would you tell your story and put it out there on the internet webs? Just for anybody to watch, in part, in whole, to grab two sentences, to grab one word. Would you put your story? Yet she dares.
in her own home, by the way. She recently received a, about a three-and-a-half-page handwritten letter telling her what a sinner she was. But Susie McIntyre's got it made. Jesus Calling came. They did a film on her. It's such a glamorous life. She just tells this story, just, just rolls off her tongue with no consequences, and that's the farthest from the truth. Be careful how we judge, right? She just sits up there at Chalky Mountain all day. All she does is work out and, I don't know, I would tell you she was up at 6 this morning, made herself a cup of coffee, worked on books for three companies, three agencies that we supervise and manage. Then she went and she tried on gowns for an event she's doing. We have to get those gowns done now and we have to get them off because we're catching a plane Monday morning and we're not going to be back in time to do it in another way. I will meet her in Denver. She's not even coming home. In Denver, she's going to film for two days. So we've got to get the hair done. Got to get the nails done. right? But all she does is set up there at Chalky. I don't know what she does all day. Works out all day long, probably. Right? And then we're going to fly home. And that's just that week. The day before, she was eight hours with two computer techs working on some problems. And that was, but all they do, all she does is set up there. She's got it made. Right? Be careful, people. How we judge. I don't know how you spend your time. I don't know who you're with. I don't know what that boy's story standing on the street corner is. All I know is I don't like his music, and I don't like his hoodie, and his pants are sagging. But I dare you, go home with him. Live in his house for three or four days before you judge. And then judge very carefully. The context is of the Sermon on the Mount here is less about behavior, more about the heart, less about religious rules. Anytime you have Pharisees nearby, you can tell because they, they divide life into those who make the rules and those who break the rules. Rule makers and rule breakers. That's how you can, and many of our churches in this country are all about rule makers and rule breakers. And I hear from them regularly because... They don't like a song we sang, or they don't like something that um, I said on a recording or something. This is about discernment, and I want to tell you, for those uh, theological literalists who take the Bible literally, this is not meant to be taken literally, because as we've already seen, we have to judge to survive, right? This is like so much of Scripture. This isn't, this isn't poetry. This isn't prophecy. This is a variety of things. It's not satire, but it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. And it's much like the exaggeration of gout your own eye out if it doesn't do what you want, or cut your hand off. It's, it's hyperbole. And if we read Scripture and understand that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here to make a point, then we'll understand the point. Now, I've got a video I'd like, us, I'd like you to watch, and let's make sure the sound is up on it. It gets started right away. As we enter this next section about the speck in someone else's eye and the plank in our own, it's hard to see our own planks. My intent is to talk about we can't see 
our own issues. Very difficult to see our own issues because they're so close to us, they're right in front of us that we can't see them. This is a digression, and I won't go here, but I think that's why God has designed community. Other people who can help us see our stuff. It's why I meet with men around the country to help them and me see our stuff. Most of us really just don't really even want to hear the truth about us. It's about the other people that we like to tell the truth about. But seeing the truth about ourselves is extremely extremely difficult and requires a huge amount of courage and lucky are we if we've got friends that will speak the truth to us why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye you hypocrite first take the plank out of your own eye then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the issue is, don't talk to your brother about his, his speck. we got to talk to our brothers about our speck. They've got to talk to me about our speck. But first of all, you better know about your own plank. So I've seen so many over the years, parents say, kids these days. Well, have you ever watched them parent? I think what might be better to say, no, your kids these days. But if you ask them about their parenting and you get beyond one question, the answer is, well, we're all doing our best, right? I, I did my, I'm doing my best, my folks, and we just shut the conversation down. Because we don't dare go there because it's so hard to see our own thing. And if we see our own thing, it's going to require something of us that's very, very difficult. So if we want to judge, judge myself first and judge myself harshly and judge myself with sober judgment. Remember Romans chapter 12? See ourselves truthfully accurately then and I'll add this maybe sort of we can go see and help someone else with their speck I will tell you however according to my points here if we judge some if we judge ourselves if we know our own stuff if I know my own tendency when I have conversations with people if I know why I do certain things and why I don't care about other things, if I know why that drives me crazy and that doesn't drive me crazy, if a parent faces the fact that one day milk gets spilt and it's a huge whooping, the next day with another child the milk gets spilt and it's, oh, it's all right, we're busy, you were distracted and need a nap. And if the parent looks at themselves and says, why do I do that? That will create such a humility in all of us. An authentic humility, knowing that I've got issues too. And when we come out of that humility spot, 
then and maybe then we can talk to another brother about something that's going on with them. Out of a humility place, someone comes up to you and, and says, hey man, you got to change this. I don't know about you, but my reaction is, I don't know who you are, but get out of my face. But if someone comes up to you and says, Mark, I've been sitting in men's groups with you for three or four years. And I've listened to you talk about Susie. I've listened to you talk about life. And uh, I know I've got plenty of issues. You've heard my stuff. But can I make a small observation? I'm not passing judgment on it. I just want to tell you what I see. And if it can help you, great. If it can't help you, then uh, uh, I'm sorry. And here's what I see. And I offer that. See, it's a whole different tone. One is actually, I long for friends like that. The other one is, who are you? Get out of my face. Now, the challenge is for husbands and wives to do this. And in the conversation in the Northwest, which is a monthly event now, we're doing a um, couples conversation and coming up with a list of questions to help the couples tell their story. We've got a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Everett to Leavenworth. Leavenworth, Washington is a destination resort town. And over that two-and-a-half drive, over a high mountain pass, the wife will ask the husband a series of 20-some questions, and he's invited to talk about those questions. And she is to uh, listen. And one of those questions is, what's one of your earliest happy memories? What's one of your earliest heartbreaks? And as she listens, she's going to have several sheets of paper that have themes. Abandonment. Aloneness. Terror. Fear. Comfort. Big. Small. Scared. And every time she hears a theme, she'll make a circle on that. And by the end of that two and a half hours, after X number of years of living with this fella and some focused conversation, she'll be able to say, here's what I see your themes are. Here's what I heard. And over lunch, they'll talk about those with the rest of the group. On the way back over, they'll reverse it. Husband will ask the wife questions. And that's how we get to know each other, by listening. And once we know each other's story, we tend to have more compassion for them. Like that boy on the street corner with, with the hoodie and the music that you don't like and the pants that you don't like. Once you go into his house and know some more of his story, you begin to have compassion for him. Judgment is an opinion or an estimate, criticism or a censor, power of comparing and deciding. Judgment implies a power differential. I have power over for you. You're an, over you. You're an idiot. You're a loser. Judgment feeds my ego instead of doing something for someone else. Judgment usually comes from a reactive place inside of us, like a knee jerk when a doctor strikes a mallet on a joint. Judgment is often unconscious. Judgment says life isn't working like I want it to, and you're in the way. Judgment has a sense of finality, like a sentence is being passed. Discernment, however, is a more courageous and personal and conscious approach. It's not reactive. It's reflective. 
And by the way, I, I teach a listen, feel, think, respond, circle, particularly when I'm working with men. Listen, feel what they're saying, think about what they're saying, then respond. In other words, don't react. Listen, feel, think, respond. Discernment does that. Discernment means we make choices, and we make those choices usually for the good of ourselves and the good of others. Discernment is described as a keen perception, an insight, an acumen. It's about seeing things as they are, not seeing things through our paradigms of how they should be. This insight is insight into our inner selves, not from our own rigid standards or opinions or social pressures. We are tapping into something much deeper than our egos. We are usually able to perceive clearly then after that. So, judge away. But make sure, before you judge, that somebody's in or out, good or bad, us or them, that you know the plank in your own eye. And then, after that incredible, painful humility comes, then we might be able to approach somebody else about their speck. Folks, I want you to approach me about And it doesn't have to be pretty. You don't have to do it really well. I hope you've looked at the plank in your own eye before you do it. But I know that I'm towing around a logging truck, and behind that is a logging mill, and behind that is a forest of trees poking out of both of my eyes. And I'd love for you to point it out. And I invite Susie to point out what she sees in my life. That's called community. The other option is you talk about the weather, talk about how Charles is doing up in Oklahoma City. You can talk about the condition of the roads. You can watch the news and, and badmouth whoever is on your bad list today. Uh, we can talk about uh, how about those Seahawks yesterday. Or we can have real conversations that actually help each other when we talk about the logs in our own eye and we can actually contribute to the health of another person and maybe help them with a speck of dust in their own eye. We approach each other humbly. Father, thank you for this time, for this moment. And Father, I want to take just a few seconds and ask us, to reflect on our own hearts this morning. Father, show us where we've judged poorly, where we've judged immaturely, where we've judged out of anger, where we've judged because our own agenda is being blocked, Father, and show us where we're discerning and where, the, where we're being kind and where the, we're being humble. Father, teach us those things this week. Make the scripture come alive for us. Father, help us to discern well. Help us to be good discerners. Father, give us a humility. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, I, was, I hope that was helpful for you. Uh, Clay, you're on next week, and I invite you to continue on with this passage or do your own thing, and I'll, I'll figure out where you're at. And then I'm back. And then I'm out for two weeks, and I forget what happens from there. Thank you all.
musicians and the people in the tech. Thank you, babysitters back here, and we'll see you all soon. Be good to each other, please.